Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. I want to welcome someone who is very special to me. We've been friends now for over two years, and I'm very happy to introduce you to Michelle Campbell. Uh, Michelle is a dear friend of mine, like I said, but she's also a strategic thinker and a practitioner in the DEI space. With an eclectic background in literature, philosophy, communications, and cultural competency, Michelle brings over 10 years experience in higher education, both inside the classroom to bear on transformative equity work. In her current role, as program director in the newly established Office of Culture, Culture, Community and Equity in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan, Michelle directs and executes a, a, a range of programs to promote and enhance equity-centered engineering. And she's actually taken the time out today to be with us when everybody else in her team is having a very important strategic planning meeting. So thank you for being here, Michelle. Michelle is a qualified administrator in the Intercultural Development Inventory, IDI, and she champions developmental cultural competency framework in her research, evaluation, and programmatic endeavors. And welcome, Michelle. Thank you for joining us today. And here at Nika White Consulting, we ask you to to introduce yourself to everybody in your own words. So could you tell us a little about yourself in your own words? Thank you, Rachel. Um, I am so delighted to be here today with you all um, for this great and important conversation. Um, So a little bit about me and my own words. I think the key word from the bio that Rachel just read to you is eclectic. Uh, I am the kind of person who is always growing and looking for new challenges. And so that has meant I've been in a lot of different spaces and learned a lot of different things, maybe not deeply, but broadly. Um, And so I just want to share a little bit about my um, journey to this point with you before we get into the questions, because I think that helps establish a little bit of context. Um, So I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Central Michigan University in English. And then I went on to Purdue University to pursue my PhD in English, uh, which I finished in 2019. Some of you may know, Purdue is a very big engineering school. And so when I was there, I had the opportunity to um, teach uh, public speaking, teach composition, work in the Center for Intercultural Learning, and also work at the Purdue Writing Lab. And some of you might be familiar with the Purdue OWL. If you've ever had to Google a grammar question, the Purdue OWL usually comes up as one of the top hits. Um, And so I started working with graduate students, graduate engineers, international students, working in the ESL space, going into the intercultural learning space. Um, And then when I got my uh, first job, it was as a communications consultant at Duke University. Uh, I should say my first job after my PhD, I've been working since I was 16. Um, But I was at Duke University in the Pratt School of Engineering, and I was working with graduate students, engineers, um, from both domestic and international, but mainly international. And for a long time, I had worked... um, in that ESL intercultural space, 
But personally, I was also involved in a lot of social activism in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And after my time at Duke, I thought, I really, I want to see how I can merge both of, both and all of these things that I have been doing, which has led me to my current role at University of Michigan. And I'm coming to you from University of Michigan North Campus in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, and as Rachel said, I'm a program director in our newly established Office of Culture, Community, and Equity. So that's just a, a short, brief history to give you some context for some of the things that Rachel and I will be talking about today. Thank you, Michelle. Um, could you could you tell us a little how you got to this point mm -hmm. as a young white hetero cis woman mm -hmm. in the DEI space? Um, you mentioned when you were telling us about yourself in your own words about um, activism, student activism. You also mentioned working with students, English as a second language. So how did you evolve to where you are now working in this role? And as your personal friend, I know you're very passionate about all things DEI. So could you share with everyone how you got to this point? Absolutely. Thanks, Rachel, for that question. So to preface it before I kind of go back in uh, history, you know, one of the things I think about all the time is how I show up in the diversity, equity, and inclusion belonging space, right? Um, I'm a white woman, I'm a young white woman, um, and that, and I'm a, a, a cis hetero <laughs> white woman, right? Um, and I, started to notice from a young age, I grew up in a very homogenous kind of lower class community on the west side of the state in West Michigan. And I, I started to notice that I was treated differently because of my gender um, within my family, within school, within community. So for me, my, my salient identity, which is also something we can probably talk about, right, our, our salient identities that are kind of our most important to us and how we frame the narrative about who we are. For me, my most salient identity has always been my gender um, because I've seen that as a huge differential in the way I interact in society and how people interact with me. So, uh, you know, I, I went on and I got my, uh, my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, but things didn't really start to heat up for me until I went to Purdue. Purdue has a large international student population. Um, my first year there, my first year of my PhD, I was teaching a public speaking course that was over half international students, um, mainly from China, but also some from India. And I, I thought, you know, oh, I've been teaching for several years. This is not a problem. And then I just realized I don't really know much about how to teach international students. Um, and so I went and I um, investigated more about what, you know, what does that even look like? Keeping in mind that I had progressively started getting into a social justice DEI space. Um, you know, I like to think baby's first protest was uh, protesting the Westboro Baptist Church coming onto campus um, when I was at Central Michigan University. Uh, and then when I was at Purdue, there was um, a coincided about the same time as Black Lives Matter. Um, there were police brutality issues on campus and in the larger community 
against our um, particularly black students on campus. And so I had this like dual track where I was trying to learn. I was in a space where there was a lot of difference around me. And I was trying to learn how to navigate that both professionally and, and personally as well. And that just continued to culminate um, through my research, through my teaching, through the different areas that I was interested in. And I had the opportunity when I was at Purdue to get certified as a qualified administrator for the intercultural development inventory, which I think is a helpful tool that we might talk about a little bit later. Mm -hmm. um, but also just, you know, thinking about, you know, how I was showing up, particularly in social justice causes. There were times when I was the only white person in a group and that was, that was a shock to me, right? I was like, oh, um, time to shut up and listen and learn. And I certainly made a number of missteps and faux pas and um, egregious mistakes, right? Um, that I was lucky enough to have people around me who were also in that learning mode, who were calling me in and sometimes calling me out and being like, that's messed up. You need to go like reevaluate your life. Um, and lucky enough, I had the tools where I was able to do that. Um, so there's some foundational competencies that I've built over time, certainly not done learning and in, in, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that's a little bit about how I show up in this space and how I got to this point. So when you were telling us about your journey, you mentioned intercultural learning. Yeah. And um, the words intercultural and um, cultural assessments mm -hmm. come up a lot um, mm -hmm. in the DEI space. Could you let us know from your opinion, is there a difference between cultural assessments, intercultural uh, learning and de diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging? 100% there's a difference, Rachel. Um, and I'd also be interested to hear what other people on the call think about this too. Um, I have never found um, like one resource that kind of explains all of these. So this is all from my personal experience, just kind of like be bopping around and being like, what are you doing over here? What are you doing over here? Um, and I, so here's kind of how I think about it. So intercultural learning very much comes out of the study abroad space, um, the comparative cultural um, assessment space, right? Um, and, you know, let's, let's be honest, we can trace study abroad programming, um, you know, back to, the times when it was thought you go overseas to either help people, right, who needed help, needed fixing, or you traveled overseas to gain culture, uh, to get acculturated, particularly in a European context, right? Um, yes, I see in the chat evangelism. So there's a, there's a lot going on in that space. The other thing about the study abroad space and the intercultural learning space, because you do need intercultural learning. If you're going into a different cultural context, um, if you're trying to do so in a way that is um, authentic and hopefully trying to be aware of privileges and 
um, power differentials and things like that, um, you do need to have some frameworks and some skills to be able to interact across difference, right? Um, and to successfully interact across difference. Um, what tends to happen in the study abroad and intercultural space, it's very white and there's a lot of white women, right? Oh, look at this face right here. Uh, so no surprise, right? That's that's kind of where I went. And, and, you know, that's also true of kind of the ESL language teaching, English as a second language, English as a foreign language space as well. Culture work, I, I find very interesting because I feel like that has been appropriated in kind of an industry business language mm -hmm. um, to, really think about, you know, what are our values, but I think it's often been used to create a dividing line. In a similar way, the idea of professionalism has been used to create a dividing line. Here's what it, what is acceptable in this space and here's what's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Now that can be used for good or evil, right? Um, so if, you're, if your uh, institutional, organizational or company culture is built on diversity, equity and inclusion values, um, then certainly that can be used as an inclusionary means, an inclusionary strategy. But mm -hmm. we know that a lot of times what happens when an, a company, for example, says we're gonna do culture work it's a way of pushing off. It, it's a it's a way of um, further entrenching a dominant culture in the conversation and in the space, and excluding a, a non dominant culture. And depending on the context, um, and then diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I see that um, some of the same tools exist between intercultural and cultural competency work and diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I see that as a very um, specific context. So for example, in the United States, when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, a lot of times what we're talking about is marginalized or non-dominant groups. And how can we affect not only the inputs like the diversity and then and the inclusion, but also the outputs, the equity. So how can we make sure that we have equitable outcomes for all of the groups involved? Um, so there are, you know, I think of them as concentric uh, circles that kind of overlap in certain spots, um, but are very, very different types of work. So where do they overlap? Mm, because yeah. what what we see in, in some of our work to in people who are resistant to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work, mm -hmm. um, and want to present cultural assessments as, a, as opposed to like a diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. assessment yeah. um, is um, they're, they're, they don't want to acknowledge that there are differences, right? That the marginalized groups are marginalized. So mm -hmm. instead, let's just look at the culture. So what are some of those intersectionalities of the intercultural, cultural, and diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, let me give you an example of a very specific framework that I find helpful in both of those spaces. So this is the Vandenberg framework for intercultural competence. So a guy named Vic Van Mick Vandenberg, who is pretty big in the intercultural study abroad learning space. Um, he said there's kind of four steps to becoming interculturally competent. And I also think that these steps apply um, for someone to become more competent in the equity area, right, um, right, as an output. So the first one is awareness of self. 
And this is really important because a lot of times when we say we're going to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work in our organization, um, folks from dominant culture backgrounds, um, and again, I'm using that language very intentionally because it's not context dependent, right? So, you know, um, in the US context, when we say dominant culture, you can think I'm mainly meaning white and male. Um, and Christian and you know hetero, but that might not be the case, right? Um, depending right. on the context that you're in. But folks from the dominant culture perspective, often when they're like, yeah, I'm gonna do diversity work, they have great intentions, and they're like, I'm gonna go to, you know, an African food festival. I'm gonna go to, you know, a uh, a play about LGBTQ people. Great, but here's the problem. If you don't know where you're at, right? It's really hard to figure out how you bridge across that difference. You don't have a home base. If you haven't done the work of figuring out where you're at within, you know, um, you know, we, Rachel and I have read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast, right? If you don't know, if you don't even have the framework of the caste system in the United States, it's really hard to understand where other people are, right? Right. Um, so, so the first one is actually awareness of self. The second is awareness of others. So that's where these cultural opportunities come in, right? Learning uh, widely and deeply about people who are different from you, uh, who have different identities, who have different lived experiences. The third one, which is also super important and often overlooked is emotional management, managing emotions, right? Because if we don't have those skills to manage emotions, Oftentimes we're going to have a situation um, where there's, um, you know, often, you know, you hear the term for better or worse, white fragility, white fragility is an emotional response, right? Because there's some kind of internal conflict that has caused um, some kind of questioning or brought up some kind of bad feeling, shame, guilt, what have you. And the emotional management is not in place. The tools for managing those emotions about shame and guilt are not in place and can lead to some very bad and sometimes traumatic and very harmful consequences um, for, for marginalized groups, right? For non-dominant culture folks. And then the last piece is bridging across difference. So what are, what are the ways that I, I'm able to bridge, let's say we're having a conflict, right? And we have a different conflict style because we come from different cultural groups. Do I have the skills to recognize that this is just a difference in how we're communicating um, that maybe you know, Rachel is coming from a culture where it's um, better to be direct and explicit. And I'm coming from a culture where it's better to be indirect and have like really reserved emotions. Um, you know, understanding those, those frameworks and then the techniques to bridge across those difference are the, the fourth piece. So when we think about this in an intercultural or a global context, of course we can think about, okay, if I'm gonna go study abroad in China, I need to be aware of who I am as an American. I need to learn about Chinese culture. I need to be able to, if I'm getting in a frustrating situation, be able to manage my emotions and then understand how to bridge across those differences. But the framework is also true within a domestic context in a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, 
uh, mode as well. So Rachel, I hope that answered the question. That, that does answer the question. And, and I will say that as a black woman in this space, when I come across that resistance from mm -hmm. people in the dominant culture, um, I try make it personal to them because in their minds, it's an us versus them mentality. And so I try and show them that I always say the B part is the part that I love for, that I focus on when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, the belonging part, mm -hmm. because everybody has a part to play. The belonging part is very important, even for people in the white dominant culture. Yeah. So yes, I, I do see that. And I think what you and I speak about often is in our work, because we are, we present differently. You're a white woman and I'm a black woman our approaches sometimes are different. So I might not go direct to, to focus on, oh, you know, that is um, white fragility. You know what I mean? Whereas you can say that because you're white. So Michelle, I've heard you say diversity and equity are inputs. Inclusion and belonging are outputs. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on this? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I may have misspoken earlier, so my apologies uh, for that. The way I like to think about it is the diversity and the inclusion are the inputs, and then the equity and the belonging are the outputs. Um, so just, just to clarify. And, uh, so any... diversity and inclusion are mm -hmm. the inputs, yep. and equity and belonging are the outputs. Exactly, okay, exactly. Got it. Yeah. So let me just walk you through a little bit about what I mean by that. And this is not an idea original to me. This is something I learned uh, actually as part of a really great workshop through IDI LLC. So the IDI stands for the Intercultural Development Inventory, which is an intercultural assessment tool that is based on a specific intercultural development framework. Um, and I went to this great training about, oh man, about a year and a half ago um, for qualified administrators of the IDI to think about, okay, exactly what we're talking about right now. What is the intersection between that intercultural work and diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Um, and you see this intersection happening. So many of us know Mary Frances Winters um, and the Winters Group, and um, she uses the IDI um, to really think through like the developmental framework of how people grow and change from kind of a monocultural mindset to a multicultural or a, yeah, a multicultural mindset. So what I mean by this, and it's helpful for me to think about it like this, is oftentimes people stop at the D and the I, right? So what do I mean by diversity? Diversity is usually count the people. Uh, how many different faces do we have here, right? Um, but it could also mean the differences that could make a difference. So earlier I talked about how my most salient identity when I think about difference is my gender. Um, but, you know, it, that might not be the case for other people who identify as women on this call. They might have other identities that are kind of more salient for them or identities that have competing saliency, right? Um, so diversity, how many people we got in the room or what are the differences that could make a difference in this group? Inclusion is kind of who is at the table or who has access to the table. But we know, um, and 
you know, I, Rachel, I'd be interested if you have thoughts about this too. I think we've seen time and again, uh, particularly in companies or organizations that are just like, let's just recruit a diverse bunch of people. We're going to put them together and it'll be great. Uh, yeah, and I guess, yeah, no, that's not right. We know that, or like, let's give them access to the table, right? I and see. like, note, note how I'm talking about that. Give them, right? Not empower, not, right, yeah, right. So we all know that is not a winning strategy, right? That is not gonna get us to the equity and the belonging, but they are important inputs. You can't get to the equity and you can't get to the belonging if everybody in your organization looks like me, right? Right. right. <laughs> so we need all of these pieces. So setting the stage with the diversity and with the inclusion practices, policies, people, um, initiatives, programs, but then also measuring for did that produce an equitable outcome and did that produce belonging? And Rachel, as you know, those things can be measured, right? right we can right. actually see if those things are working or not. I think what I find most frustrating when people think about DEI from a systems perspective is they think, oh, the system is broken, the system is broken. And, you know, I think, no, the system's not broken, right? If you're getting a certain kind of outcome and you're not doing anything about the inputs, uh, this, the system is working exactly how it was set up to work, right? Um, and, you know, we can, we can look at that at a cultural level, at an organizational or an institutional level, and also at a personal level. Right. If you're not getting the kind of outcomes you want from your own uh, DEI work, right, your self work, your group work, your family work, um, it's it's time to change the inputs, right, what you're doing to get a different type of outcome. So that's just a little bit about how I think about um, that in terms of inputs and outputs in a systems perspective. Thank you. Um, we are a part of a, a book club. And we've discussed a few books over the years, yeah. um, but many times um, the intercultural developmental continuum yeah. and minimization comes up. And um, what I have learned from being in, a, a, in commun communication with you and in the book club with you, it has liberated me to say certain terms like, um, white supremacy that I wasn't so comfortable with saying because I was one of those people who had a seat at the table but didn't want to rock the boat because I had made it to the table. So could you tell us a little about the intercultural developmental continuum mm -hmm. and how people in the dominant culture sometimes minimize um, the DEI work in general? Absolutely. This is, this is my jam <laughs> is talking about this. So I'm going to put a link in the chat for everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just preface this by saying like, I'm not paid by IDILLC. Like, this is not like, 
me, you know, it's not a direct sales opportunity or anything like that. Um, but I find this framework to be so, so helpful when I'm thinking about meeting people where they are and trying to really understand why people are acting the way they are in the space, right? And so I use this um, also um, in conjunction with different cultural theories, thinking about white supremacist culture, um, thinking about developmental theory, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but if you take a look at that intercultural development continuum, you'll see there's a couple different stages of development there. So there's denial, which is like, I don't see cultural differences. And basically what that means is somebody um, they can see a difference, right? But they attribute it to a personality difference or an individual difference, not something that's connected to a larger culture. Then there's something called um, polarization, which after the last four to five years, we are all quite familiar with that. And that is really an us versus them perspective. So I, um, you know, this is where um, white supremacists live or other kinds of supremacists, right? Pick your identity group um, will often live. And again, it's this very polarization, um, us versus them. Um, and it changes depending on dominant and non-dominant culture, right? Um, so if you can all think of a time where, you know, you identified strongly with a particular cultural group or identity group, and we're very put off by a different uh, identity or cultural group, it's probably a time when you were in polarization. Um, minimization, which Rachel is talking about, is this really interesting developmental stage, which I, you know, the IDI from research, this is a, a tested, vetted, well-researched continuum. The IDI tells us the majority of people who um, take the assessment all the way from, you know, kind of undergraduate students through business professionals, um, the majority of people are in minimization. So as I'm talking, um, y'all might be thinking, hmm, am I in minimization? And what does that mean for me? Michelle I, Michelle, I just want to yeah, jump in yeah. and say, we've talked about this before. When you have an organization that is um, wanting to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and then they opt for doing cultural work yes, instead, yes. that is a form of minimization. 100%. So we're not going to we're not gonna address the issues when it comes to equity, um, diversity. We're gonna just talk about, is this a nice place to work? Are you happy here? That's an example of minimization, correct? 100%. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Rachel, because minimization manifests at an individual level, but it also manifests at an organizational level as well. And so maybe it's easier to talk about what it, you know, to go off what you said and what it looks like at an organizational level. Um, minimization is where there's a focus on similarity and there is a um, minimizing of conflict. So anything that could cause any kind of conflict, oh, I don't know, like, you know, maybe somebody saying, I don't think I'm being treated equitably in this organization because of an identity characteristic I have. Right. Um, and it looks different from a dominant culture perspective and a non-dominant culture perspective. So the dominant culture perspective, institutions and individuals who are in minimization love DEI work. Right. Because at the end of the day where, you know, you'll often hear things like we're all the same at the end of the day. We're all humans at the end of the day. We're all under the same God at the end of the day. Um, but the 
The problem or the challenge is that if we focus on similarity, we miss those differences that could make a difference. So this is the place where microaggressions live. This is the place where white fragility lives, right? And this, for a non-dominant culture perspective, and, and Rachel, you just said it, right? Um, you're also afraid of conflict because you don't want to rock the boat. Because if you, you know if conflict arises, the non-dominant culture person's the one who's going to get their hand slapped or worse, right? right? It's not going to end well for that non-dominant culture person. From an organizational perspective, this often looks like companies um, hiring for difference. We really want a diverse pool of candidates. We really want to pull in some diversity and then onboarding for similarity. Okay, now that you're here, you need to fit into our company culture, right? Right. So, so minimization, there's great opportunities in minimization, but my biggest fear is that a lot of organizations who say they're ready for DEI work, and honestly, a lot of DEI practitioners are in that minimization phase, um, that developmental phase. And if, if there's not attention paid to what the advantages, I mean, there's a lot of advantages too in minimization, right? People who are the same get along great. People in minimization are great at building relationships on common ground, right? So it's not like a, it's not necessarily a bad place to be, but it can cause a lot of challenges that will perpetuate harm to non-dominant culture, marginalized people in individual relationships and in organizations. You just said something that I hadn't thought about, but it's true, which is that some DEI practitioners are in that minimization phase. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, think about it. In the 80s and in the 90s, um, what, what's the messaging about diversity in the workplace? Let's just get to a place where we can even possibly have a seat at the table. Right. So, so in that case, being in minimization, that's like the ultimate goal for dominant and non-dominant culture folks. Right. I'm not a racist. That's <laughs> like dominant. That, I mean, that's minimization, classic dom, dominant culture. Right. Oh, I can't be a racist. Right. I have, you know, X, Y, and Z friends, or I have X, Y, and Z employees. Right. So that performative diversity, Right. But the, the deeper work is not it's not being done. So minimization we've seen as really the end goal for quite some time. And also, when you get past minimization, if you're looking at that um, continuum on the, the link I put in the chat, you'll see there's actually two more developmental phases after that. And those can be very frustrating and lonely developmental places to be because you tend to start seeing, if you're in those developmental phases, you tend to start seeing a lot of complexity and ambiguity, and there is no longer one right answer. Um, and that can be a really lonely and scary place to be um, for folks. And um, it is really hard to be somebody who's further along on that developmental continuum and dealing with an organization and minimization because you're just banging your head against the wall like why don't these people see what they're doing <laughs> right so I I'm sure you can't relate at all Rachel <laughs> well I what are the if you could quickly tell us what are the next two stages yeah 
So the next two are acceptance and adaptation. Um, acceptance is really, um, well, let, let me back up and say, so minimization, right, focuses a lot on similarity, right? So if I was in minimization, I'd be like, Rachel, we're both women. Yeah, you know, women, woo, right? But like, I'd be like, ooh, Rachel's blackness. We're just gonna, you know, Not we're talk gonna talk about that. women. Yeah, right. exactly, right. exactly. Right. So when somebody moves from that minimization to that acceptance phase, it's recognizing judgments. It's not always jumping to that. Oh, yeah, I'm like that, too. Oh, yeah, I've had that that exact experience, too. It's like, oh, wait, maybe because Rachel has some identities that might not be the same salient identities as me. If I'm saying I've had the same exact experience as Rachel, maybe that's not true. And I would be minimizing her experience, right? I would not be a trusted person for her to, to come to, right? To talk. Right. Um, and so acceptance is really figuring out what are those judgments that I'm having that are minimizing other people's experiences? Um, and also how am I pushing down conflict before it could even happen? Uh, a lot about moving from minimization to acceptance is about emotional management, right? Coming back to that emotional management. It's, it's a lot of internal work. And then the, the last uh, developmental stage is called adaptation. And this is really important. It's not assimilation. It's not that I'm gonna change who I am or how I show up um, in, in, a, in a way that kind of feels really icky, but it's how am I going to change my behaviors to achieve a particular goal? So often people who are in adaptation the question they often ask themselves in a situation where they're encountering difference is, do I want to be right or do I want to be effective? Both things can be goals, right? But they're two very different things that have two very different sets of action in most situations. So those are the other two. Those are the other two. And you and I have talked a lot about how an individual can swing back and forth on that continuum. And I will say as an individual, I've done that where I know, okay, I'm at this end now. No, I'm at this end. And the goal is to be somewhere in the middle. The goal is to be able to operate, to be able to choose where you operate on the continuum. Right. Right. Um, and, and that's adaptation, right? Like if you're in adaptation, that means you can operate anywhere you want to on the continuum in a strategic way. Um, but we do go across the continuum depending on, um, the differences, uh, that we're interacting across and also how stressed out we are, right? Like I'm not going to be acting my best if I am food insecure, if I'm not healthy, if I'm not making a living wage, right? Um, if I, you know, don't, if I don't feel like I'm uh, in a secure place mentally, emotionally, and physically, there is no way that I'm going to be operating at my best in a in a situation. And so. I think what we've seen a lot in the political sphere is a lot of people who are probably very um, operating probably in minimization, right? Like, let's just focus on the good. I often like to say I live in the Midwest, that minimization is Midwest nice, <laughs> right? So I'm, you know, I'm good. I'm good. Every We're, we're just going to focus on the similarities. We're going to ignore the differences. But then when you know, when the political conversation, the social sphere is about difference, 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 
that makes a lot of people kind of go back into that polarization because they don't feel safe. They don't feel secure. Right. right. And that aligns with racist dog whistles and, you know, who's going to come in to take over your whatever. Um, and, and so again, we can really move across the continuum um, as individuals, as organizations, um, and, and also politically at the same time. Right. Michelle, I could talk to you forever, but I also wanted to give um, people an opportunity to ask you some questions. Mm -hmm. And Alina put a question in chat. Alina, if you would like to unmute yourself and ask Michelle the question. And, and if not, I can read the question out. Alina? So Alina asked, uh, Michelle mentioned you can measure equity and belonging. What are some of the best measurement tools to do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and Rachel, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say if there's other folks on the call, because I am not a, I have, um, broad knowledge about evaluation, but I am not an evaluation specialist. Um, but I do know that there's actually several inventories and assessments that can measure belonging. Um, if you all go to the Hub for Intercultural Learning, it's hubicl.org, there is a, you can, um, you have to sign up, but the sign up is free. Uh, one of the things is a digital toolbox that has a bunch of, and again, it's intercultural based, so keep that in mind, but there's a bunch of different assessments and there's also an assessments collection that has a bunch of these things, particularly for belonging, like if you're, if you want to survey a group of people or an organization, things like that. Um, but then there's also things like equity analyses, which could be an analysis of HR policy. It could be an analysis of how people feel in terms of um, the equity they're experiencing in the workplace or within a group, things like that. But Rachel, I'll turn it back to you if you have some thoughts as well. Um, Mauricio actually put the, the link yeah. um, in chat. When it comes to measurement, it's normally long-term. It's nothing you can measure right away. Um, and when companies begin to implement DEIB initiatives, it's measured over a long period of time. And those measurements include metrics like retention, um, recruitment. Um, it's um, very specific, number specific. So yes, those are some of the, the long-term tools that can be used. Rachel, you, you brought up something really important that I just want to add on. So it's important that these assessments are done long-term because often when you start measuring things like doing a climate survey, doing a belongingness survey, um, and implementing an intervention, so workshops, programs, whatever, oftentimes the scores go down. And that is because people get more aware, right? right. They're like, oh, dang, like... I am not as competent as I thought I was in this space. Um, and so that's really important. You know, often I talk with faculty who are like, let's do a belongingness survey every semester to track the progress. And I'm like, that's a great idea, but it's actually gonna show you what you don't wanna see <laughs> if you right. do it every single semester. And also you've gotta create time to show that 
you're not just being performative. It's not something you're just talking about. You have to implement the changes, mm -hmm. you know, set up a strategic plan and begin to implement the strategic plan over time. Mm -hmm. um, but um, Kira, you, you have some questions for Michelle. Would you like to unmute yourself and ask your questions for Michelle? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sorry I'm off uh, camera this morning. Uh, so, uh, Michelle, I guess I'd love to take this opportunity to ask you a question about uh, what you currently do in your role. Uh, and I guess I have two questions. So first of all, I'm just really interested. In some, I work for a software company. So diversity engineering is just something that we talk about a lot. So I would just love to just learn about, you know, kind of key aspects of DNI work that you're looking at in your current role. And my kind of piggyback question is, um, when I often think about diversity engineering, again, working for a software company, we're all about attracting diverse talent. And I do believe that there are some things that employers can do uh, to help people, to help more people pursue careers in engineering. But I almost wonder that that's way too late in the funnel and probably higher ed is probably way too late in the funnel because only so many people get to that point, right? For many reasons. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts about I guess specifically, I apologize if this is like too niche or too geeky for people, but yeah, when we talk about, you know, engineering skills, like how, how early should we start or what can we do to actually make some meaningful progress there? Absolutely. So we have a whole nother hour to talk about this, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the short answer is work has to happen across um, all of the different inflection points in the life cycle of engineering education and professionalization. Um, in my current role, so the, the team that I'm on, the Office of Culture, Community and Equity, um, we are currently in transition. We're a newly established office, kind of replacing but adding on to a former office. Um, but some of the things that um, we are currently doing, so we have um, K through 12 uh, pathway programs that introduce students um, and, and the hope is usually marginalized students, students that are underrepresented in the engineering space um, to engineering concepts um, in a culturally inclusive way. So one of the really important things um, I, I think there's often this idea that the problem is access and not exclusion. Now it's true that there are access issues for marginalized and underrepresented populations to get into STEM, um, to get into STEM education. But I think equally as important is looking at the way that the culture is framed right, about the way that opportunities are disseminated um, and, and just purely the um, exclusion, right? Well, you don't look like an engineer. Oh, I thought you were probably a whatever other major. You don't look like a math major, right? Like that is really, really damaging. And it's really hard to be what you can't see. Um, I am pleased to share that the dean of our college of engineering who is a rocket scientist is a black man and has really driven diversity equity and inclusion issues at michigan engineering and has actually put out an article in inside higher education to talk about equity centered engineering so not only do we need to have you know those inputs um, but we need to be thinking about how can we take the discipline of engineering and engineering education and transform it into a public good, right? 
Um, and, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. But anyway, so the, the K through 12 pathway programs are super important. Once we get students onto campus, what are the support services for them there? But also not just focusing on the marginalized students or the underrepresented students, right? The white male students have just as much and even more, in my opinion, responsibility to make a place where there can be meaningful inclusion, right? Um, I recently have worked on graduate programs, so the next prof programs, which are um, aimed at getting a more diverse set of faculty into engineering. So um, instead of a big point of attrition is losing particularly um, black engineers to industry where they can get paid a lot more uh, versus having them become professors um, and then continue that life cycle for students. Um, so that's a program that I have worked on. But then even if they do go out into industry, like um, you know, I was just in a meeting with the Dean the other day where he said, you know, it's so important that we have interventions in our education because our students are probably not getting it before they come to us and we're probably not getting it after they come to us, right? So this is the time, this is the place. What are some of the things I do? Education for faculty, education for staff. Um, again, we're in like the strategic planning phase, um, but a big part of my job right now is actually working with faculty on really big National Science Foundation grants. We're talking big multi-million dollar bucks. The National Science Foundation requires sections about broader impacts, about broadening participation. And so one of my um, important things is to kind of work with faculty and explain to them like, if, you, if your broadening participation initiative is going into a community that you haven't been to before and you have no ties to that community and you don't look like that community and you think you're gonna come in, saviorism, right? You think you're gonna come in and provide this access, let's reevaluate that, right? Let's reevaluate that. Um, do the right candidates get the grants from NSF? Um, I can't necessarily answer that. I think the there's a lot of different factors uh, that come into play there because at the end of the day, the science has to be there, right? right? But getting the scientists who can have the science and the competency, that is, that's the key. I think we have time for one more question. Anne Kingston, did you wanna come off mute and bring up your question to Michelle? Sure, thank you. So um, I was just, it kind of struck me when you were talking about doing the periodic um, semester frequency for surveys um, and showing people what they don't want to see. But um, I do tend to think of their, their about there being value um, and kind of creating that sense of urgency and that call to action and keeping people connected to the issue. So I had just mentioned in the chat um, for International Women's Day this year, um, we had some really you know, bad numbers from a demographic side for our organization, particularly at the higher levels of leadership. Um, and then just you know, some horror stories of you know, women's just kind of feeling written off in meetings and that kind of thing, getting underpaid and um, I was orchestrating a, a session and I was like, you know what, don't, don't feel like you have to protect anyone mm -hmm. by omitting these details. I think it is important that 
we're creating that awareness and kind of instigating that those levels of discomfort for everyone because otherwise if you're only showing like the good news you know in in this situation um you know it's it's not meant to be a feel-good exercise right Absolutely. And I think it's so important to, to think about, again, going back to that developmental continuum um, and that question, do I want to be right or do I, you know, do I want to be effective, right? So we all know that presenting horror stories, as you said, to leadership um, can often have the opposite effect, right? Um, and, and that's, that is based on where they're at developmentally, right? If they only want to hear similarity, if they're in minimization and they want to minimize conflict, it's actually not the best strategy, right? And that doesn't mean that we're minimizing those experiences. We're just being strategic with how we gain buy-in to enact change, right? So there's there's a lot of different levels to that. And it can be, it can be really hard to navigate that um, strategy piece. Um, and that's why the self-awareness is so important to say, here's where I'm at developmentally, here's where I think they're at developmentally, um, and then be able to formulate a strategy that's going to be effective. But, I, you know, I'm, sometimes I just want to be right. Sometimes I just want to like shove it in their face and be like, look, this is the mess y'all made. Are you going to fix it? Just depends on if you want to be right or effective. Yeah, it's a calculated risk. Mm -hmm. Do we have any more questions for Michelle? Well, Michelle, thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for the time that you took to, to be here with us. Before, before we log off, um, could you share a little about language? Mm. Um, we, we've talked about language and you know my struggle with language. When you are doing this work, is language important and why? That's one of my questions for you. Yeah. Well, you know, asking the English PhD, of course, language is important. <laughs> but, but I think it goes back to that strategy piece and for me, that accuracy and precision piece, right? So I very, and I said this earlier, I talk about dominant and non-dominant culture when I'm talking about intercultural and cultural competency because then it can be context, it's context, um, uh, it's not context dependent, right? When we're talking about underrepresented or marginalized folks, right? That is very context dependent and tends to be more of the language of the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging sphere, right? Right. Um, I also think it's important to, to name things, right? So I think it's really important, particularly for white people to talk about whiteness, right? It's not like white people are race neutral, uh, which is honestly what I, how I grew up, right? Oh yeah, you're just, you're just an American, okay? Oh, and that's an African-American. Um, so, you know, it's really important to name the thing and to be comfortable naming the thing. Um, and also, you know, normalizing, normalizing that language, right? There's a lot of white people who feel really uncomfortable saying that they're white. Um, oh no, I have like German ancestry. I have Polish ancestry. Um, but that those racial categorizations that, that really, really matter, 
um, can be very, very uncomfortable. So getting comfortable with using the appropriate language for the appropriate context, um, and also naming the thing that you're talking about. Um, again, right, we, went, we talked about this earlier about how like, well, we're not gonna do DEI work, we're gonna do cultural work. Right. That's a big red flag for me, right? If DEI is not part of your cultural work, it could be that you're doing cultural work and DEI is a foundational piece, that's a better situation, but you're gonna do culture instead of DEI, that's a big red flag for me. Well, Michelle, we're at the top of our hour. Thank you so much to you for coming to share with us. Um, If we could all kind of come off uh, mute and just say thank you to Michelle for the time that she spent with us. And um, thank you all for joining us this morning for Intentional Conversations. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so Thank much. you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, Michelle. You were amazing. Thanks, Rachel. Lovely to do this with you. Thank you.